What a what a great turnout um, for such a wonderful topic and a outstanding and brilliant speaker, John David. Does he look like an angel? He does look like an angel. That was my point, in case you missed it. <laughs> Looks and, can be deceiving. Angelic. For those of you who were here earlier, we did uh, a warm-up to angels with angels at the nativity. And uh, this is a continuation, or maybe it'll actually segue into kind of a new concept with angels, but certainly angels are glorious and from the realm of glory. And with that in mind, let's open in prayer. Father, we know you by so many names. Jehovah, Yahweh, Creator, And certainly the angels are here to praise you as we do this day. For all the glorious and wondrous things you've given us, we give you thanks. And we ask for your blessing to this time. That as we get to know you better, our relationship deepens, our, our minds are renewed, and we grow into you and your son, Jesus Christ. In these names we pray. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Come on in. Don't be shy. Hey, uh, let's just talk uh, casually right here at the beginning. Uh, those of you who have studied with me before, what is the stated policy at every course regarding questions? There is no such thing as a dumb or stupid question. I believe that with all my heart. The day I stop believing that, I'll probably stop trying to be an educator. Everybody's at a different level. Nobody knows everything. We're all learning together. If you have a question, I would almost guarantee after teaching for 40 years, two or three people in your group will have a similar question. Or they'll say, when you ask it, thank God somebody asked that. I wanted to ask it, but I was afraid to ask it. And I don't know, I've also observed over the years, hanging out in churches for 40 years, something happens when people come into church. Uh, many things happen, but one thing that happens is like, their sense of inquiry and questioning somehow gets shut off. It's like you walk in and say, okay, I'm not supposed to ask any questions. Is that been your experience? Does that seem that way sometimes? Not here. Not here. Well, that's true. <laughs> now, God has blessed us with a rich group of people that attend here at Christ Church, and they really, really ask questions. So the rest of you who are new to the group, feel free to do the same thing. No one will think you odd. Uh, where is the central mic, there it is. And do we have uh, my young scholar? Would you like to run the mic today? You don't have to do it. Would you like to do it? We have joy in doing it. <laughs> All right, so don't feel odd when you see somebody's hand up. Just, you're a young lad, you have excess energy. Sprint right to the table and then they'll go, oh, I don't want to talk into the mic. Just disregard that and put it right in front. Just be a reporter. Watch the reporters on TV. All right, my good friends, having said all of that, uh, yes, this, if you were here when, at Christmas time, uh, the stated topic was angels at the birth of Jesus. And there was a, there was a sheet attached to that packet, and it, it was said, you could ask any question that you wanted to help me get ready for this set series. And I, I was a little 
disappointed. I only got like two or three questions out of the 60 people that were there. But one of the people actually said, cover the topic. <laughs> because as you recall, the stated topic was angels at the birth of Jesus. We never even got close to Jesus. Do you remember this? Okay. Well, somebody said, you know, next time cover the topic, in effect. All right, that's fine. That's fine. Um, and uh, I'm always learning. Every time I teach, I always stand back and say, wow, what went well and what didn't go so well. And I never know how to exactly feel when we have one of those classes in which people just start flinging questions like crazy and, uh, and we take a conversation. Now, I, I don't know what it's like to sit through that. I kind of think it's cool in our era because we're kind of being trained by media to do soundbite stuff, right? So five to seven minutes is a lengthy discussion on our news media today. So I think maybe sometimes classes that mimic that would be pretty good. You get a five to seven minute soundbite and then we move on next topic. As opposed to the old style of lecturing a long time ago, do you remember that? Somebody would stand up with a sheaf of papers. Did anyone take a college course like this? And somebody would literally read to you for 50 minutes. That era is over, correct? <laughs> We're happy about it. So we don't want that to happen in this class. <clears throat> and so if you're frustrated because we seem to be going all over the place, I'm sorry, but I think it's worth it to have the spontaneity and the excitement of learning together and also kind of trust me because I really am brilliant and so <laughs> sorry I'm just kidding but I do actually have a lesson plan and I actually do pay attention to where we're going and I try to weave and if we miss it this week I'll try to bring it back so don't, don't get f too freaked out if we seem to be drifting. All right, we have a document that you've been given. Um, I want you to take a look at the first quote down there at the bottom on the front cover page uh, under Erect and Evil. Uh, does anyone have the set, the great ideas, the great books of the Western world published by the University of Chicago Press? Does anyone have this set? Uh, my aunt gave me this set. This is one of the classic reference sets of all time. I think she paid $1,000 for it in 1950. Um, it's 100 books of the greatest books, according to the University of Chicago professors, the greatest books of the Western world. In that set, they also have what is called a syntopicon. It's two volumes that preface all of the great literature. And yes, most of them are white, and most of them are male. Yes, I know, there's flaws in it. But these are the heavyweights down through the Western age, all of the big players. They have a syntopicon in which they arrange the 100 great ideas, the, gr gr the 100 great notions. And what you can do, for example, you can go to the one that says God, and you can read that article, and it traces through the entire Western corpus from prior to Christ, back into the Greek era, all the way through Western history, what people have said about God. It's a fascinating book, fascinating topic, fascinating <laughs> approach to, to knowledge. I don't know how much they cost now, maybe about 3,000, but I lucked out. I had an intellectual aunt and she gave me this set, I have it. 
I'm so excited about it. It's most, it's my, this would be the one thing that if Jesus said, give this up, this would really hurt. <laughs> uh, yeah, pre-internet condensation of the greatest notions in the history of the Western world. And what's the first article in the Syntopicon? Angel. Now you say, well, that's because it starts with an A. Well, yes, but, <laughs> but it's listed as one of the 100 greatest ideas of the Western world. Now notice they're, and these people are stone-cold intellects. I mean, they are big-time intellectuals. Now notice this is a very cautious quote from the first page. Whether such beings exist or not, the fact that they are conceivable has significance for theory and analysis. Now, how would you deconstruct that? What do you think that says and means? We know what the words say, but what is the meaning? Thank you. We're not sure. But, but, <laughs> but they're good for you, so eat them. Yes. Um, Well, we could sit and argue forever and ever and ever, do they really exist or not? But the authors then say, okay, well, the next step is what? We talk about them, and they as a construct can then lead to what? To either a rejection or acceptance. Yes, we can, we can ultimately conclude that they don't exist or they do exist, but in the process of debating whether they really exist and are really real or they're just like unicorns, or Tolkien's elves? Or do some of you believe the elves really exist? <laughs> there you go. Uh, point being is what? When you study Tolkien and study about elves, he puts a portrait of what an elf is versus a orc. An orc is a ruined elf. And in the process, you, you're reading this, you suspend uh, belief and disbelief, you just read it as a story, and it teaches you something about what it means to be human when you study other kinds of creatures, entities, even though they may be <laughs> theoretical or not. Does it make sense? That's what the author is saying. All right, get past just for a second whether they really do exist or not, and start thinking about, well, they may, and so what if they did, and what would it mean, and how would it impact me as a human being if such creatures existed? So I think that's a great place to start a good attitude rather than being all dogmatic about it. Let's just be open-minded. Now, if you would turn to page two. The picture there is courtesy of Cindy Friley. My angel never feels that way. He's always rejoicing and totally happy because I always do the right thing. But <laughs> No, I can't even imagine what my angel looks, but maybe your angel looks like this, like, oh, wow. Um, what's going on now? Anyways, there are five questions. Now, the reason I want to just try to focus on these five questions this morning is because last April, I got an invitation from the Maslin Public Library, of all places, to go down there and give a talk, a seminar, sponsored by the Maslin Public Library on the topic of, guess what? Angels. And why did they do that? Because the librarian said they can't, stuff the shelves fast enough with the torrent of literature that is being published on the supernatural. Angels and demons 
and vampires and werewolves. And it's like drinking water from a fire hydrant, she said. And people just are pouring into the library to get these books. Um, how many of you have gotten into the, um, uh, the vampire uh, series? Twilight! Twilight. <laughs> You're definitely outside of the... <laughs> you're in another demographic. <laughs> um, what else is there for young people? Twilight. What? Well, yes, of course, zombies. That's kind of a, the living dead. Teen wolf. Supernatural. Anybody watch that? Prior to that, on a lower level with more tongue-in-cheek, was Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> Where have you been? What is oh, I get it. I know. I see. I know what it is. It's just that you are all so sanctified that you would not defile your mind with such trash. Good. Fine. But Bella Lugosi. Okay, Bella Lugosi as the ultimate vampire. There we go. All right, so it's not that you haven't exposed yourself to this stuff. It's that it's my stuff is dated vis-a-vis -vis your reference point. Okay, super. But anyways, this library says, it's just like a torrent. So she says, would you come and talk about angels? And I said, sure. Well, I said, it would really, really be helpful if all these people that are coming in, if you'd collect the questions that they have. So they did it over a course of a month. These were a lot of, a lot of people asked these questions. So I thought they were cool in the sense that it's pretty good sampling of not a church crowd per se, just, a, you know, a strata of our society. These are the things that they care about. One, do I or we wonder if angels really exist? We'll talk about that. Number two, if they do exist, how did they come to be? Super. Three, do angels have an effect on human life? Four, are some angels good and some evil? And five, what are some facts about spiritual warfare? Now, that last question certainly was put in there by a Christian. Some of them you can tell that the person didn't have a, a, a viewpoint one way or the other, right? It's just open-ended. But those are the five classic questions. So I'm going to start with number one, and I'd like you to turn the page. <coughs> and I guess what this person wants to know is, hey, look, are these things really real? Do they really exist? Now, uh, that's a worldview question, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But on page three, what do you see here? <laughs> angels in movies and angels in books. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean it's true because a lot of people seem preoccupied with it? Absolutely not. And we know that's a logical fallacy. It's called consensus gentium. Just because a consensus or a majority or everybody agrees and believes on one thing. Do you guys use that in legal court, consensus gentium? No. Yeah, yeah. Just because everybody believes a thing doesn't make it true. But in point of fact, uh, look at the movies just from basically the 40s, around the turn of the World War II. These are all the movies that have been published on angels. I counted up last night. Uh, that I have seen 17 of these. On average of two hours a pop, that's 34 hours of curriculum. Uh, that is equal to roughly a college course. And not to mention all the time I spend thinking about all these different movies. So I feel like, wow, I took a college course through media 
Uh, and when I look at what I have watched, uh, it's pretty disastrous. Now, how many of you think have watched more than 17 of these? <laughs> oh, I bet I know which one it is. What a wonderful life. Or the bishop's wife, okay. It's a wonderful life. Notice the date, 1946. What's the wonderful life about? It's the essence of the story is that a guy despairs of the meaning and purpose of his life and an angel is sent to illuminate him and make sure he understands, no, your role is important even though you can't fully understand it. What were people thinking in 1946? What did we just go through? The, the most savage, horrible, disgusting period of worldwide desolation, evil, horror, people were asking the question, are you serious? Is this life even worth anything? What does it matter? And, uh, you know, the first time I saw Wonderful Life, uh, I was at a bad part of my life, and it kind of touched me. There's other times when I watch it, I'm like, this is so cheesy. <laughs> and it is. But if you pick, pick and pick and get rid of, you know, all of the cartoonish nature of it, and get back to the core of what that movie's trying to tell us. That movie's trying to tell us that human beings are very important. What we do is very important. It means everything if you do the right thing because it's going to have a huge impact on other people. If you do the wrong thing or give up, it's going to have a huge impact on all these other people. And God in God's providence does what? To help us in the human condition. Sends us an assistant, an angel. Now, the stuff about angels getting the wings and all that stuff, total Hollywood balderdash. Sorry, even though it is touching at the end when she says, Daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. Yeah, it's absolutely touching, but utterly false. That's, that's not what an angel is. An angel is not a human elevated. Of course, that was also the theme of uh, what big down at the bottom, touched by an angel huge impact in our culture. Lots of people watch that. And so on and on and on. Anybody see The Devil's Advocate, 1997? Al Pacino? Uh, that is a pretty accurate display of what Satan is like. If you watch that movie, it's, it's one of the few accurate ones. Uh, anybody watch Fallen? Denzel Washington. The thesis of that movie is that um, uh, demonic entities or fallen angels can be transmitted by touch like spiritual cooties. Utterly false. But it's a cool story. How many of you have seen um, The Exorcist? based on a compilation of five exorcist case histories compiled by the Catholic Church, vetted, studied, authenticated. The author synthesized those five vetted, uh, endorsed, imprimatured Catholic experiences and wrote a book. Uh, and uh, that's what some people have encountered in spiritual warfare. I'd say that's the third standard deviation of spiritual warfare. Most people don't ever see anything like that. Um, so on and on and on, these movies. And of course, one of the themes, you asked me, why do I watch this stuff? 
um, because in my role as a teacher, and to do that, I have to stay abreast of culture and understand what's going on in culture, and especially for young people, I have to stay in touch. I watch these things. Now, when I go to these movies, believe it or not, I actually pray ahead of time. Sometimes I fast. And I don't go in there and say, okay, fill my mind with demonic gore. I go in there and say, <laughs> entertain me. No, I go in there in a prayerful mood and I analyze the document. I take it as a text, like it's a book, like it's a story. And I want to understand what are you teaching us as a society. And I found out that people actually go to these movies and guess what? They come out and they say what? They believe that, that there's something veridical or true or that the, that the movies are actually depicting reality correctly. And it just so happens that God has blessed me with calling me to be a Bible teacher. So, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i just like a doctor like Dr. Smith or, you know, your knowledge of the law. I mean, you just know it, right? <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> you know the law. You know it. Anybody that is, you know, done a discipline. So, I mean, I'm not any special human being. I just... God called me to master the Bible, so I mean, I can sit there and watch these movies and say, oh, there, I see what they're doing, and that's completely wrong, and, and then I can interview and talk with people, so that's why I watch it, but what does this tell us? What does that sheet tell us? There's a lot of false notions, of false notions about the... And there's tremendous interest. Hollywood doesn't do this because it's got an educational curriculum alone. This is about money. This makes money. Therefore, if people are willing to pay money, they have an interest. They want to know about the supernatural world. Look on the right-hand side, the books. Now, <clears throat> you want to get your mind blown? Look at the first one that I bolded. The site below lists 2,999 books that involve angels and demons. 3,000 books. Um, drop down about... Three quarters of the way down, there's another bold. Marshall, G, Angels, an indexed and partially annotated bibliography of over 4,300 scholarly books and articles from the 7th century B.C. So here's a guy that has put a, together a bibliography that is 2,700 years long that it includes every classical and noteworthy reference that's ever been put together on the topic of angels. Now, having read this entire corpus of literature, <laughs> oh, again, it's like drinking water from a fire hydrant. I put uh, a listing of some of the classics that I thought, I actually even cited myself, that's embarrassing, but I did it. You can go and read my doctoral dissertation on angels and how they impact humans. When I told one of my uh, good colleagues, he asked me, what are you doing your dissertation on? I said, uh, how angels, particularly fallen ones, impact the human race. He sat down in his chair like somebody had knocked him over and said, John, that's positively medieval. <laughs> and I said, yeah, it, it kind of is, isn't it? Oh, speaking of which, what's the modern way of um, sort of like dismissing 
the, the idea of angels among some people when it starts getting talked about. They'll, they'll haul up a debating point from the Middle Ages and, ah, uh, uh, yes! How many angels can dance on the head of a pen? And uh, that actually was a debating point in the Middle Ages, but wrenched out of its context, uh, it looks like uh, a bunch of uh, clerics uh, sitting around who have had too much wine to drink and no uh, life, and so they're in these texts pondering stupid stuff like, well, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? They didn't really care about that. What did they really want to find out? Thank you. What a scholar. Do angels take up any space at all, or are they totally incorporeal? So some you know, scholar put this debating point out there and said, talk about this. Do they take up space? Can they stand on the head of a pen? And if so, how many? And this was supposed to stimulate the students to think. Now it's used as what in our culture? You just, anybody that cares about this kind of stuff, you just dismiss it. So, angels have become entrenched in our culture, and that doesn't make it real that people care about this, although when I first started thinking about how I was going to approach this topic last April at the Maslin Public Library, <coughs> uh, of course, my first inclination was, since I believe angels exist and I believe that the Bible teaches that they do, my first inclination was kind of to create a defense like an apologetic. Like here, I'm gonna give these reasons why believing in an angel is, or angels is a reasonable thing to do. And the more I dipped into it and looked at the research and the polling, guess what? The vast majority of Americans believe in angels. Did you know that? Now, I'm not gonna cite the particular numbers because based on the poll, based on the way the questions are asked, you can get, but it's clear, the body of all the polling has done that it's like in the 65 to 75% range, the majority of people in our country believe in supernatural entities, angels. Judge, does that make it true? No. What it does is it tells us what? That our culture in particular is very much fascinated and wants to know about the realm of the supernatural and they're hungry for information to the extent that they will buy book after book and go to movie after movie. And therefore, if um, now this class, this church, uh, stands inside of the circle of the Christian faith, and so therefore, uh, we don't, we're not dogmatic about things, but when you hear something taught at this church, it's coming from the understanding that while we have great sympathy for people that disagree with us, this is a place where you hear what? Well, supposedly the truth. I mean, to the best that we can do it. We're going to try to say, this is the Christian version. Hey, good morning. <laughs> now, <clears throat> um, what it gets down to is this. Um, I'm going to use an analogy, and I'm going to ask you to turn to uh, page five. This is how you have to deal with this issue, I think, in a modern world. And it's a little chart on worldview thinking. Now, worldview thinking begins with asking questions, and I list out some of the great questions that you and I have asked. We really used to talk a lot about this our freshman year of college. Then we got cynical and decided to make money. 
but do you remember when you were 19? What is ultimate reality? What's this all about? Why are we here? Is there a plan and purpose to life? You still ask those questions, don't you? <laughs> yes, you do. These are young people's questions. And then something happens. What happens at death? How can we know anything? What's the basis of morality? The meaning and purpose of life is, wow. Okay, now, worldviews provide answers. We could take a survey, find out what somebody's worldview is, what's their comprehensive outlook on life, ask them those questions, get the answers, and compare it with somebody else that holds a totally different worldview. They would have different answers. And so now we find out what? A worldview is sort of like a pair of sunglasses, right? When you put those on, these are not mine, by the way, just... I'd never dare wear something like this in public. <laughs> well, I am, but just as an illustration. Okay. Now I've filtered out what? X amount of the right light rays that, and everything looks kind of... No, it's yellow, like that Coldplay song. You ever hear that? Yellow. It's all yellow. How many of you have seen that ad on TV that you can buy these um, sunglasses that filter out the night light and, and, and it's supposed to make the night driving perfect? Has anybody tried them? Do they work? Because, I mean, I'm like such a sucker. I want to buy a pair of these, but I'm worried. It's a, it's a yellowish. It puts it, you can actually be drive better at night. Because when I drive at night anymore, it's like walk, watching a Monet painting. So uh, I thought maybe this would help me. But we know what sunglasses do. They filter out X amount of the rays of, of light so they, that you are allowed to be able to see a different spectrum. And what does a worldview do? It, it, it basically taints your thinking or when you put on a worldview and you say, okay, I'm going to look at life from a Christian point of view. That means you're going to allow certain information that comes from the Christian worldview to become part of your vision. But what if you are on the other end of the pole, like many people are in our society today, and they are what is called naturalists? A naturalist. What is a naturalist? Everything is rooted in natural causes. There is no supernatural. So in the process of becoming a natural, then you come to realize, okay, God's a myth, Angels are a myth. All supernatural entities are a myth. The only thing that's true is can that which can be proven and verified by science. And you start putting that pair of sunglasses on your head, and that's the way you look at reality. Okay, it's a worldview. It's a respectable worldview. These people are very smart. But in effect, what are they doing? Anytime any information comes into their worldview that could possibly suggest that the supernatural exists, what happens? These filter them out. Well, it's not that they don't know about it. They're very hip to all of the Christian answers. It's that their worldview takes the Christian answer and morphs it into something that makes sense within the naturalistic view, view and basically winds up telling the supernaturalist what? Y you're wrong. There's all kinds of different styles of people that do this. How many of you have ever heard Richard Dawkins talk? Brilliant, acerbic, cutting, sarcastic. 
he has he makes no bones about it. I am going to show you what a goofball you are for believing that God exists. Richard Dawking, he, he's got it all going on because everybody feels already this total sympathy for him. They wheel him out in his wheelchair. He has to speak through modern technology. And he comes to the conclusion uh, that the beginning of the universe was what he calls a singularity. Uh, a singularity is something that's unique, happens only once, and that he believes that it's not uh, necessary to bring God into the equation to come to the conclusion that the universe just came to be. It just popped out of nothing. It's a singularity. You don't need to invoke God to explain it. And when he does it, of course, he's already got your sympathy, plus he's not a sneering, snide, uh, argumentative person, and he's like this little crumpled doll that sits in a chair and speaks this stuff out. But in fact, what is he telling you? We don't need to invoke God to explain the cosmos. So Hawking's, Hawkins does it, Hawking does it in a just a dispassionate, analytical, excited way. Some of the other atheists do it in ways that make you feel like you're an idiot for believing this. The point of fact is that these two worldviews, supernaturalism and naturalism, are contending for the minds and hearts and souls of every one of us. And the pressure is unrelenting on us. So... Uh, what we need to do and understand when we're talking with people is that everybody's holding a worldview. Nobody sees reality absolutely pristinely. We all have our biases, and what we want to do is now move prudently, carefully inside of the Christian worldview and try to understand as a worldview, this is what the Christian faith says about angelic entities. And believe me, that's like drinking water from another fire hydrant. There's so much stuff in the Bible about angelic entities, it's not funny. It just goes on and on. So we will do our best as worldview thinkers and as Christians to try to tackle this uh, point of view. So what's the answer to the first question? Do people wonder whether angels really exist? Overwhelmingly so. In fact, way more than the people that say they don't exist. So, at least we can take comfort that we're all crazy together. <laughs> right? This is something that humans care about. So, let's just be honest about it. Number two. Okay, assuming if they do exist, where did they come from? Now, pl please turn to page four. Now, I wish I would have the gift given to me that the medieval scholars did. Their aim was to have a place for everything and everything in its place. And I wish that could happen to my office. <laughs> but they, they took it to a new level. Intellectually, what they wanted to do was build a comprehensive worldview, and they wanted to understand everything in the Bible and how everything related to each other. They didn't want to just know, okay, how do I go to heaven or how can I live a blessed life? I mean, they wanted to see the whole picture. So they created this thing called the great chain of being. Okay, and what, what they meant by that, what they wanted to try to do was they wanted to organize everything that exists, everything that has being, and in philosophy, this is called the study of ontos, being, 
or ontology, the nature of existence and who, how life exists. And what they wanted to do was create this enormous, comprehensive worldview to the extent that they could, and they wanted to understand they, what they called the great chain of being because it was clear to them that not all creatures share the same kind of level of life, right? We all have life in different levels and different forms. Even among human beings, we have different levels of life. And of course, the great chain of being, because they were Christians, I'm going to use the universal symbol for God, they put God up here outside of the chain, and why'd they do that? The chain starts down here. God's outside of the chain. Because God wasn't created. The thing that, that by definition, by nature, and by biblical declaration, what we're talking about when we use the word God is a being that has no beginning and no end. I mean, do you want to really have a cool God experience sometime? Here's what you should do. Go, I've told you guys this before. Go out at night when the stars are shining. Find a comfortable tree to lean up against. Um, don't even have to take drugs to do this. <laughs> and stare at the stars and focus your mind for about an hour on this idea. The one who made these stars always existed. Did not have a beginning and will have no end. And don't start thinking about the browns or... What, what do young girls think about? <laughs> boys. boys. Don't think about boys. They're down here on the created chain. Just think for one hour about God and what that means to exist forever and ever. You'll have a God experience. And so that's what these people wanted to do. And they said, okay, well then what, what's underneath here? Because one thing we know about our existence is that we exist. We've identified ourselves as human beings. And by common consensus at that point in human history, what did they think about animals? This was before the New Age movement. Uh, yeah, uh, oh, good grief, there's a hierarchy. Now, of course, in the, in the age of Aquarius, on the sophisticated level, you're supposed to believe that all life forms are basically what? One. And so therefore, and I don't really dispute that that could be true. We are one to a certain level. But they smuggle in on the basis of that we all share life, the notion that therefore we're all equally valuable. So that means what? Don't step on an ant. Who gave you the right to snuff out the life form of an ant? What, because you're human? No. You don't have the right to do that. And then it's all those variations. But still, at this point in human history, when they made the chain, they thought that there was a hierarchy and that humans had a place in it. And just to make life simple, I laid it all out. But we're just going to take the animal kingdom here. And now we discover what? that many animals share characteristics that if, if you let yourself watch it and don't get too freaked out, you watch some of those monkey shows and what do you see? You see yourself. 
I mean, not the throwing of the feces and all that, but, <laughs> you know, some of the other things. Well, I know some humans do do that. And none of my friends do that. Um, yeah, so you watch that and you say, wow, we do share traits. I mean, I watch my dogs fight and what they do. And it's like sometimes watching myself in a mirror. I see what they care about. I see that in me. Now, of course, I reserve the right to believe that I'm superior to them because I've been made how? The taller. <laughs> no, I'm thinking theologically. What am I? Creature made in God's image, and it is my destiny to benevolently rule and reign over German shepherds. Nicely. So then the whole idea came in by human experience. Humans saw that this dynamic was uh, embedded in human existence. And then through experience and through the Bible, they then also came to realize that there's another class of entities that exhibit characteristics that they would call as being superior to humans. And they didn't construct this notion out of some textbook. Uh, how did they come to know and believe that angels exist? I know this was before the Bible even was written. They had experiences with angels. Now, this morning when I walked in here, some, somebody sitting here told me that last, uh, well, some number of years ago, before this building was redecorated, that they came in here and they were at a conference for a bunch of churches and all of the churches were here together uh, uh, focusing on something. So it was really a great thing. No denominationalism, focused on Christ. And the person glanced their eyes up. I guess, do you remember when there used to be ledges up here? And the person said that they saw uh, all kinds of angels sitting up there on the ledges. And uh, now, I did ask the person, uh, when was the last time that they took LSD? <laughs> no, I didn't ask them that. Because why would I bring a notion like that to the table when somebody tells me that they saw an angel when I can go through the Bible and page after page over and over again right down to the history? Human beings in the Bible characteristically say what? I had an experience with an angelic entity over and over and over again. Not every day, but they did. And so then so much information about them got to be written down that eventually theologians uh, actually <coughs> created a a branch of theology called angelology. Has anybody ever heard of this? Yes. Like creatures like me that go to seminary and study the Bible in an academic context, we take courses on angelology. And so then you have to read uh, everything the Bible says about angels plus everything that anybody thinks they know anything about the topic has said down through the ages. And how many books did I tell you are out there? And thousands and thousands and thousands. So a corpus of understanding developed on the topic of angels. Then you get twisties on it. Wow. Then there's another whole branch. What about the fallen angels? So we throw that in a category called demonology. And then 
Then there's Satanology, demonology, angelology. It goes on and on and on. But this is a big deal in, in uh, theology, but it's rooted in human experiences. And so then these people that are constructing the great chain of being, they had to answer the question, which is the question we're talking about, and that is, where did these creatures that are clearly superior to us, where did they come from? And they're so glorious, and they're so awesome, that every time that they appear to somebody in the Bible, what's the first thing they usually wind up having to say? Don't get freaked out. Don't be afraid. <laughs> Why do they have to say that? Because they are not in the cheap way, I had an awesome sub today. I had a, what else is awesome? Yeah, in the way we use awesome in the world today. I, I, I got an um, invitation to go skiing this weekend. Somebody says, awesome. Everything's awesome. What does awesome really mean? I'm not putting down your culture. I, use, I do it all the time. Everything's awesome. But awe is that sensation, that apprehension that you are in the presence of something that is so superior to you that you are taken out of yourself and you realize who you are vis-a-vis -vis the cosmos, that it's not all about you, that there's something else so much bigger and glorious that all you can feel towards that entity is awe. This is what human beings have the experience when they meet angels. And wow, that's a good thing for a human being on one level because human beings tend to be what? We're very self-centered because we, if, you, if you're not open to this range of human experience, then your range of experience is exclusively downward. And are you smarter than your shepherd? You're smarter than your turtle? Do you honestly believe that your shepherd is equal to you? So we're used to being what? We're the top. We, Epicurus from the Greeks. What did he say was true about humans? What did he say the human is? Man is the measure of all things. What does that mean? We're the standard by which everything gets judged and evaluated. We're the kings. That's what Greeks believed. Now, what God revealed to the Jewish people and then ultimately to us is what? That's not true. Humans aren't the measure of all things. There's entities, beings, classes of creatures that are so far superior to you that they make you look like a monkey vis-a-vis -vis you. So when you go to the zoo and look at monkeys, what do you think? <coughs> what are things that you think? He forgot the shit. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, how, entertaining. how entertaining. How cute. Now, of course, now that I have shepherds, people are consistently sending me these videos of shepherds and dogs, the cutest dogs of America, all the nonsense that they do. And you watch these little dog shows and you say what? Aww. Okay. There are people that say that. They look at that and they say, that's my remote cousin. <laughs> and I don't know too many of them who then say, and I would love to switch places 
and the evolutionary chain, I'd like to go back and experience raw, primal animal, being an animal, just a monkey. No, we look at them, we say, oh, how cute, we take care of them. What if you found out that there were a class of entities that look at you like you look at monkeys, and they look at you and say, aww. <laughs> Isn't that bizarre? They would look at you like they're little pets. <laughs> like, uh, these poor creatures, they, they need so much help. I gotta, I, gotta f I gotta figure out a way to help them. And this is what the middle-aged people came to understand, that <coughs> angels are, are pure spirits, animals are basically pure bodies, what are humans? Hybrids. We have bodies, and we also have spirits. An angel doesn't have a body, which isn't a defect. An animal doesn't have the, the image of God. And we sit in the middle, and they're above us because they're smarter. They've been along, around a lot longer than us and they have greater power. They can do stuff that we can't do. And where did they come to be? How did they come to be? So here's God. Here's eternity that way. Here's eternity this way. And what we are to believe that at a certain point, you can't say time, because time doesn't really apply to God but in some way that what we would think of as time, God decided to do what? Directly create all kinds of entities that we call angels, spirit beings, out of nothing. And the bummer for them is they don't do this by sexual, no sex for them. You're supposed to laugh, but that's the... <laughs> and I know this is church, and it's tough. <clears throat> Jesus said in Matthew 22 with regard to angels, <clears throat> they, people in the resurrection, he said, that they will be like the angels, neither marrying nor giving in marriage. They don't marry. They don't reproduce. They're spirit beings, so they don't have sex. That means that how did they come into existence? By direct creation of God, God just says, come into existence. That's cool, isn't it? And it, we're not given, we're not told that whether they were all made at the same time or whether there was a progressive order in which God created. We're also told that they're made in terms of like ranks or uh, levels. <clears throat> so how did they come to be? They're just creatures of God. That means they have a beginning. They're not eternal. That means also, because they're created, they don't have other attributes of God that we sometimes ascribe to them. Like what? What do they know? They don't know everything. And so they learn by observation and by other ways, because they're made in, the, in God's image as well. They learn but they're, they have, they're finite. They had a certain point in time where they started, 
and uh, then they have their destiny. Just like we have a certain point in which time, in time, every one of us had a beginning. And then, of course, what does the Christian message tell us about our destiny? We, we can uh, receive the gift of life through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, and we can join this state of being of eternal life. Uh, angels don't need to do that because they were created this way, and for the ones that didn't fall, they just live forever. So, yes, sir. Oh, of course. But Satan wasn't Satan when Satan was made. God makes everything good, and of course, if you want to read one book written for the 20th and 21st century that really helps you understand angels in a cool way, it's called Paralandra, P-E-R-E-L-A-N-D-R-A, written by C.S. Lewis, it's part of his space trilogy. But the second book in particular, novelistically, is the most accurate depiction of what angels are really like. Paralandra, P-E-R-E-L-A-N-D-R-A. And it shows them, uh, he, Lewis's term is for some of them, he calls them uh, bent the bent angels, which implies what? Distorted. Um, what's the opposite of bent? Straight. So uh, there are straight angels, and we're not talking about sexual orientation either. They're just straight, straight to God. And then there's bent ones whose nature and wills and personalities have become bent from what God meant them to be. So, they were good, but they became evil. Does that mean God made evil? Remember when you were 19 and you cared about this stuff? Now, I don't think it means that God made evil. I think God made things to have a certain nature, and those natures, if they're conscious, can change what they were meant to be and turn it into something else that it's not. Okay? And that's what Lewis talks about because Lewis says there's not only the great chain of being, but there's the great chain of rightness. And what he says that the chain of rightness is all about is creatures aligning their wills with their creator and living in harmony with their creator because that makes sense, right? Because we were made by God and we should live in harmony and oneness with God. And if you choose not to do that and you become bent and you turn away from that, then of course, you're not what God made you to be. You made yourself evil. So God didn't make you evil. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes. That's right. And so the angels are, what I'm trying to do is get at the question, uh, where did they come from? They were directly made by God. And then the next question is implied, are some good and some evil? And the answer from the Bible is very clear. Yes, some of them have become evil. How did they do that? 
The same way we do. How, how, do you be, how, do, how can we become evil? You just, A, turn away from God, and then B, what? Just live, do whatever you want to do. And even if you think what you're doing is relatively good, ultimately, it's not what God wanted you to do or be. You created your own reality, and of course, then, you're not living in God's reality. And if God really is God, then that means what? You're living in unreality. This is what some of the angels did. They decided to create their own reality, to live on their own terms. What is that called in philosophy, by the way, when somebody does that? Autonomy. We use this as a positive term. I wish you would be more autonomous. This is what parents say to 15-year-olds. <laughs> Self-law. What does it mean? In a good sense, it means when you're uh, an engaged creature that doesn't have to be told every step of the way what to do. You're an adult. In the philosophical, theological sense, autonomy means what? self Law, self-rule. What's wrong with that? What if your self is not devoted to God? That's being bent. Ooh, this is hard to grasp as humans because why? We're sitting here, we tell the animals what to do. We run and rule this world. And then all of a sudden, the spiritual veil gets opened up and you find out what? Uh, <laughs> you thought you were hot stuff and you're just like nothing I mean you, no you're not nothing you're very valuable but comparatively speaking there's this whole cosmos out there and the whole issue of what it means to exist and to be is how do you relate to God isn't that amazing so this is a cosmic thing this, this topic opens us up to the entire story of the Bible and gives it a cosmic twist yes uh, you mean Satan's fall? The choice to be autonomous is, is the original. The original sin of our parents, as depicted in the Bible, is simply this. The God told them X, Y, Z, and they said what? We've looked at the situation, and we think that we'll do what we want because it's a better choice. The Bible calls that deception when that happens to you, by the way. And deceptions always look good, if you recall. And I'm not pushing literally the Adam and Eve story one way or the other, but you remember what she said when she looked at the, at the tree. What did she look at? What did she say? She saw that it was pleasant to the eye. She had a glorious aesthetic experience. And then she looked at it, and, and something happened inside of her body, and she said what? I would like to have that in my body. I think that would be a cool experience. And um, so she was deceived. She thought something that was good turned out to be bad for her because she had slid into autonomy, self-rule. Now, who, did, who taught her to do that? The snake. Well, yes, but it just so happens that the story does tell us somebody was there to tutor her into this. And who does that happen to be? 
The snake, which we later find out as we study the Bible, was some form of form that the enemy took. Again, you don't have to believe the literal story per se to get the point. She didn't just come up with, I think I'm going to disobey God and eat this fruit. Where did she get that idea? From a fallen angel who himself had gone through the process and did it to himself. Man and yes, John created angels to be to, uh, superior to man. Satan was one of those angels. Yes, God knew. I mean, God knows everything. He lives right. in a, a eternal God knew this would happen. Tense. He knew that Satan was going to turn on him. So, yeah. was his overall plan for us to have a constant tug of war between good and evil, as as humans? Um, it's a great question, and it will be the last one for today because I see our time is gone. Um, how many of you like Twilight Zone? Well, I'm getting better. <laughs> Best one I ever saw was this one in which this guy was a sociopath, psychopath, and it was set in the modern, you know, far in the future. So what they did was put this guy on a spaceship with enough provisions that he would live the rest of his life out on some planet and they shot him there, and he's exiled forever. He gets there, and there, among all of the provisions for the rest of his life, is a box. He cracks open the box, and lo and behold, what comes out of the box? A stunning woman. And this woman turns out to be what we now call an android, and it has been pre-programmed to love and adore this sociopath who's been sent to this island. So call up in your mind if you want to feel it, vice, reverse the roles, women, the most awesome man, every characteristic that you would want, women, the most awesome man, you're, you're out here on, on this island, uh, or on this planet, the, the robot is programmed to love you exactly the way you want to be loved. Anybody that's ever been in a relationship, you know that stage where you say what? I know you love me, but you don't love me the way I want to be loved. This robot will love you exactly the way you want to be loved. Now, would you like to be in that situation? <laughs> what an honest person. <laughs> For a couple of days. Uh, yeah, most of my Malone students would say, I'll do three, three months there, uh, that's fine. But after, what about three years, seven years? Eventually, when you wake up some morning and she starts blathering or he starts blathering, I adore you. You are the most awesome creature. Eventually, it's, the penny's going to drop and you're going to say what? Can you give that to John? Yeah, because you've been programmed to say that. This isn't real. Now, that is the best way I can understand God's creation and God's creation of entities. If God had made us in, and angels in such a way that we could do no other than but to say yes, like the robot, then God's going to be sitting there having a relationship with a creature that has been pre-programmed to say, oh, I adore you. If a human would get bored with that, God's going to look at it and say what? This is not what I want. So God takes this amazing 
step and, and actually gives, creates creatures that can do what? Actually choose. And he knows that some people, God knows, that some are going to misuse it. And it gets down to God's point of view is because some people are going to misuse a really cosmically cool thing, does that mean I shouldn't give that gift to anybody? Does it make sense? Should I let a few naysayers stop everything from existing? And God's answer was what? Go ahead and say no all you want because eventually, guess what's going to happen? Everybody's going to say yes. Reality will prevail. God will make God's way known to the universe. And we just happen to be what? We're part of it. And that's why angels are important. I ran over today. Forgive me, but you still can run and go to church. And Dan, go ahead and make this announcement. Just as the angels were meant to glorify God, you're all invited to join us in the sanctuary and glorify God this morning with Pastor Dave and your other friends. Thanks for coming. We've got four more weeks. Come on back next week.